HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our live taping of Tech Bites. It's a podcast on the Heritage Radio Network. We are a food podcast network based out of Bushwick, Brooklyn, and we are 10 years old this year. So if you haven't heard of us, follow along for the next 10 years. Um, thanks to our host, Jin Liutzi, for coming out tonight and hosting this live version of her show that airs on, will air on Tuesday. And I want to make a quick announcement that Big Alice Brewing, our generous host tonight at Industry City, is offering $1 off large pours. So go get, order more beer uh, and get ready for this live show. Thank you. Woo. Thank you, Kat. Dollar off beers. I know. I, you heard that, right? Yeah, it'll, it'll make the podcast better. <laughs> I'm much funnier when you're drunk. You'll like me more with a dollar <laughs> off draft beer, I'm sure. So as Kat said, I'm Jennifer Leitzi. I'm the host and producer of a podcast on the Heritage Radio Network called Tech Bites. We talk to influencers and innovators in the food tech space. I've been on the air since January of 2015. We'll be coming up on episode 2020. I love talking to founders about innovations and new things that are happening. So this is a really great opportunity to do that in front of a live audience. The show is usually live, but we're in a shipping container at Roberta's Pizza. So we don't usually have audience. We do get a lot of strange looks from people in the dining room who look through the plate glass window and kind of point to us like we're a radio aquarium. But it's nice to have an audience, and we will leave some time at the end for question and answers if people have thoughts and things that they'd like to know. So first up, I will introduce my guests tonight. They are the founders of Feel Good Foods, and if you've been noshing on those delicious spring rolls, they are the creators and innovators of that. If you want to check them out online, they are feelfg.com, and on Instagram, they're at feelgoodfoods. It's always fun to follow along. This will be aired on Tuesday evening next week in my live time slot. So it's always nice to give some reference points for people to follow along at home. Right here, I have Trig Severson. And next to him, I have Vanessa Phillips, co-founders. 
Thank you for agreeing to do it live in front of an audience. Thank you for yeah. having us. It was an easy commute. You're at Industry City here, right? Very fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a little close. Sorry. Hot mic. Yeah. Hot spring roll, hot mic. Yeah. She Coming. gets really excited when there's a microphone in front of her. Like, it reminds her of her childhood when she used to sing Whitney Houston. So. <laughs> karaoke fan maybe do you have a microphone yeah. in the office uh, no but i do sing in the office i make my own microphone <laughs> you should get her a cordless mic for like the all hands meetings and things yeah. like we, that we got karaoke coming up so uh you know it's a it's a chance for her to bust out her best whitney impression so i really i love this i love this space it's such a fascinating place i haven't been down here very often what made you decide to locate your business here there are so many choices in New York. There, it's true. We had a restaurant inside the Chelsea Market prior to um, starting Feel Good Foods called Friedman's. After your apartment, but before Feel Good Foods? Right, exactly. And when we sold Friedman's to focus on Feel Good Foods, uh, Jamestown, which at the time owned Chelsea Market, had just purchased Industry City. So it was like still a construction site, and we had no idea at the time that it was going to develop to be what it is today. Um, but we were one of like their very early tenants, and we just loved that it was a. I mean, I grew up in New York City. I had never explored this part of Brooklyn, so it was really intriguing for me to like learn a new area. And um, Trig was really interested in it just because it was super industrial, and we knew that they were going to be bringing a lot of manufacturing here, and it just made sense for us at the time. And that was six years ago, and. We keep growing and getting bigger spaces, and we love it here, so it's been good. So much of the startup culture and innovative companies and the new food businesses is about finding other founders, finding other entrepreneurs, the accelerator, the incubator, the shared workspace. Those are all very popular. Do you find that being in a space like this where you have a lot of innovative companies around you is helpful? Is there actually a benefit of the mass? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, we it's all about like collaborative thinking and working and networking. And whenever you're around like-minded entrepreneurs or businesses, it always gets you, you know, collaborating in different ways and yeah we love being in a very like open environment we're around other businesses I mean nobody ever wants to be secluded like you learn from one another sharing ideas and pinging things back and forth so yeah it's it's great and it's very interesting because Industry City has done an excellent job of marketing themselves uh, because when we tell people like yeah we're in Industry City everyone's always like oh wow cool you're in Industry City so it definitely has that great vibe going on right now for the startup world but at the same time there's big businesses that are jumping in here uh, you know every day so it's a good mix of well-established in the startup mindset so it's fun from a collaboratory standpoint one of the things that we were talking about before we came on the stage what is it that makes a gluten-free, frozen appetizer snack company something that's considered food innovation? And I think part of that has to do simply with the time and space that we're in about how new businesses start. Ten years ago, if you were starting a food company, you would just be starting a food company and you would put a business plan together and you try and figure that out and you go to some trade shows. But in the last ten years, startup culture has really shaped the way new businesses start. You have decks and pitch and pitch-offs. 
and all these different uh, accelerators for your business that by virtue of the time and the way you started your business that just kind of puts you into an innovative food category. Do you feel like you're innovative foods? I mean, I know you're good foods. Yes, I, I definitely think we're innovative. I mean, we are the only company um, that has gluten-free potstickers and egg rolls and cauliflower crust um, snack bites. So, I mean, I, I would definitely pride ourselves on like pushing the envelope from a food innovation standpoint. Um, but I also think that the, the climate has changed so much from when we started to now. And I was really, at the time, I was really lucky because when I first met Trig, there was no gluten-free food at all. I mean, there was very few gluten-free restaurants. Can you put a timeline on this when you first yeah. met? Yeah. So I, so I was, I was diagnosed with celiac in 2002, and for two years I was really struggling to find gluten-free food that didn't taste gluten-free or even just gluten-free food at all. And then when I met Trig in 2004, he did not know a lot about gluten-free food, but he was incredibly talented chef and he had worked at a number of upscale restaurants and you know had graduated from the Culinary Institute of America and the fact that he didn't have background in gluten-free cooking was actually I think an advantage for us because he was really bringing all of his knowledge from you know working at Nobu and like working at John George so he was like taking that same kind of like culinary know-how that he would need to have to be working in a sophisticated restaurant and bringing that to like gluten-free cooking rather than what I was used to at that time is restaurants and chefs who really didn't have any experience cooking at all, but then they had like one person in their family who was gluten-free and they were like, oh, I know there's a market for it. I'll just cook gluten-free. And he was coming from it from a completely different perspective. He was like, I'm going to make it gluten-free for you, but it's going to have to hold up to like the way I eat and the food culture that I'm coming from in order for me to put my name on it. So at the time when he first started cooking gluten-free, it was really innovative and he was doing things that I had never seen before gluten-free. And today there's obviously a lot of like Me Too companies and a lot of, you know, kind of copycats. Um, so we're really having to kind of continue to step up our game and continue to be innovative and, and to be ahead of the trends. Um, but when we started, Trig was definitely like a trailblazer in gluten-free cooking for sure. I, I've been to Freeman's. Were you responsible for the gluten-free fried chicken and waffle? Most definitely. <laughs> spectacular. Yeah. I have to say spectacular. And I myself am not gluten-free, but I've had friends who are. And that's how we discovered the restaurant. And a friend was, um, became gluten intolerant later in life. And that fried chicken and waffle was like a miracle from the kitchen. It's legit. It's yeah. really, you know, it's... I think a true testament to something being good is that you're not thinking about it as being from a specific category. You're just thinking right. about it as being something delicious. Yeah. Well, and that's the most important thing that, and Vanessa said that, uh, coming from a, a chef perspective, I never wanted to innovate something and make it gluten-free just to make it gluten-free. It needs to be gluten-free and taste amazing. And if it doesn't taste amazing, then it's not something that we want to put out into the marketplace. I don't know how much people or home cooks really realize uh, a, the gluten-free proposition is really one of chemistry and cooking chemistry. We think of gluten as just being flour and all the 
floury, bready, carby things that go along with it, but gluten's actually a protein, and protein as a molecule and how protein reacts and the different sort of chemical, heat-related things that happen when you're cooking is a critical piece. So it's not just finding something flour-like that would replace it. The action that you get from gluten when it transforms from one state to the next, the protein molecule is really what the challenge is. So when we talk about it being innovative, we don't really realize it, I think, sometimes, but creating gluten-free things, you're really looking at food chemistry. Yeah, chem uh, chemically speaking, gluten's pretty amazing. I mean, it does so many amazing things for your baked products, so being able to emulate that is rather challenging. Um, you know, we use kind of interesting substitutes in our pot stickers to be able to create that same elasticity that you would typically expect to get from uh, a wheat-based product. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a, a significant food chemistry uh, component to what we do, which is why we got a really smart guy in the R&D department who's got an MBA in this and uh, focuses on... You an know, MBA the, in gluten-free? The MBA in gluten-free, yeah. <laughs> He's... <laughs> He, he, he's, uh, he, he, came to, he came to the company from a big gluten-free pizza manufacturing company, so he's a, dough, he's a dough guy. Okay. Yeah. One of the other things that we talked about in terms of the innovation space, which is really interesting, frozen foods have been a part of uh, certainly American life for many years, half a century at least. But back in the day when the first frozen TV dinners came out and the first first frozen foods came out, you basically had two reheating options. You had your oven, and it was basically a standard oven, right, gas or electric, or you had the boiling bag. And today, it's really fascinating to think about the evolution of technology that a home cook now has accessible to them. So when you're creating a frozen product, or even any make-at-home product, you're able to have your customers utilize an array of technology. People can home sous vide, there's the Instapots, there's the air fryers, convection ovens, the supersonic microwaves, conve convection with steam, rotisserie, induction. Yeah, and it's, it's crazy just the transformation that's happened in the last five years when we look at the reheating methods that people do at home for our products. You know, we kind of think in a very analog fashion sometimes. We're like, okay, we want people to reheat this in an oven because that's how it's going to be the best. Um, but people are putting it in their air fryers. People are putting it in their microwave slash convection ovens where it microwaves for 30 seconds and then bakes for 10 minutes. Um, so it, it gives a lot more variability to how consumers eat our products. And it also makes us think, well, how is a customer ultimately going to use this? And have we covered all of our bases from a formula standpoint that will allow the customer to have a great experience no matter whether they put it in the microwave or the air fryer or the oven? And that's kind of a challenge to kind of capture all those things because the customer, really, when they open the box, they may look at the reheating instructions or they may not. How many people look at instructions for anything that they bring into their home? Do you look at cooking instructions, reheat? Assembly. I see couple, two hands, hands. <laughs> a maybe. I would like to, to just note for people who can't see the audience, none of the men raised their hands. That's All true. of the hand raisers were women. <laughs> just saying. Yeah, well, that's the same reason we don't ask for directions, right? You know? yes. But fortunately, we don't need to do that anymore with GPS technology, not. right? Yes. 
So what, what has been the biggest surprise or the biggest development over the past five years? Did you think about all this technology when you were developing all the original recipes? Is it something that happened later? Are you going to build your own technology, your own maybe, like, you know, good foods press to pot sticker press at home or something? I, the biggest surprise, I mean, I think that, that from the technology side, we we saw early on that that was going to be important and needed. I mean, there was there's no way that you could start doing the experimenting that we were doing and think that it was going to be just combining different flowers. They definitely felt for many years that we were like, or well, I was more the observer and the taste tester, but that it was definitely like mad, a mad scientist in my kitchen all the time. Um, Trig would take um, really complicated recipes. I remember he devoured the modernist cuisine series book and he would you know he took so many different components of different techniques from like Thomas Keller and I mean and he would kind of combine them all together um, and I think that that's just for what we were trying to do it's imperative you know it's not just like oh I'm going to take some rice flour some potato starch and some xanthan gum and, and that's going to make a, a wrapper like it was oh we knew from day one that it was going to be way more sophisticated than that and and so much of it was going to be about different temperatures and 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 yeah, so I don't, I, the surprise about the complexity of our cooking, well, there was really no surprise there. I think that um, the surprise came more just with like scaling it to be a business because obviously when you come up with a recipe in, in your home kitchen and then, you know, you try and convert that to become a... Multiply a, it by a thousand. Right? It, it, the numbers different. don't actually work that way. If you're... A home cook and Thanksgiving is right around the corner. If you have a favorite recipe that you love that serves six and you have 40 people coming over for dinner, do not just multiply to get to 40 because it doesn't work that way. Right. It'll look, be very salty. Yeah. yeah. It, it doesn't work. It, it, it's not all things are equal. So look for large format recipes or ask a professional for help. Yeah. Well, and that's an interesting <laughs> point too because... Uh, Starting with a benchtop sample where everything starts in kind of a home kitchen, you know, and the ideas come from uh, whether it be trying to recreate something from a nostalgia standpoint, like a Totino's pizza roll, like how do you make a better Totino's pizza roll? Um, you know, it all starts in the kitchen, but taking it from the kitchen and industrializing that in a way that doesn't feel extremely impersonal. Uh, is something that's very challenging. And obviously we, we focus a lot on automation when it comes to the manufacturing process, but also trying to not lose uh, that authentic feel is something that's extremely challenging when you go from, hey, we made this by hand in the kitchen to we're making this on machinery uh, so that it can, so we can feed the masses. So it's something we think about a lot. It, 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 it comes up a lot in our innovation discussions and and when we're scaling, we have, we're thinking about that constantly. Does, does this look like the product that we started with when we made it in our kitchen at home? Does this taste like the product that we made in, in our home kitchen? And that drives us to always find new techniques when it comes to manufacturing and create you know, different packaging scenarios to be able to, and reheating techniques so that we can recreate what we're creating in the home kitchen for you on a mass scale at a reasonable price. On sale now. On sale soon at Whole Foods, right? Monday, I think, with a discount if you're a Prime member. That's real. That's not a joke.
That's real. <laughs> uh, something interesting, but definitely gluten-related. I had on my show two weeks ago Apollonia Poilin, who is the granddaughter of the famous Poilin baker and third generation running the Poilin bakery empire from Paris. If you've ever been to Paris and been to Poilin, they make those big loaves of bread. They opened the um, original bakery, uh, 8 Rue Cherche Midi, on the left bank in 1932. And they're still making the same recipe, the same breads. So she doesn't sound very innovative and technological. The title of the show was Retro Innovation. How much technology has changed? Is it better? Is it still the same? When they opened the bakery in 1932, they had peak technology. So one of the interesting things that she said is that over the years they have tried new technology as it comes out. They've tried to integrate different things, different ovens, different forms of you know, shaping, mixing, all that. They now ship to 40 countries worldwide. They sell to 2,000 restaurants. The business has expanded significantly. She said at one point they tried digital scales in the bread kitchen to hit a precise weight over and over and over again, and they thought that maybe digital scales would help scale the production. But they had taught everybody to really learn to bake by hand, and they had taught them all to be able to eyeball it and feel it, that when people had to stop to weigh everything, they didn't get a better production, they did not get a more precise product, they lost time because everybody had to take time to stop to weigh each loaf. So then they went back to doing what they always do, which is just eyeballing it, and then occasionally weighing something with the Roman scale. So that was one instance where they are doing mass production in a very intimate way, and they tried to go to technology, but it just it wound up not being more helpful. Is there a point where you have too much technology, do you think? I, I'm, I'm going to say no. Um, I mean, this is called, uh, you know, this is a tech podcast, so I don't feel like I'm allowed to say too much technology. You absolutely could, though. <laughs> uh, we, well, we, we take breaks from tech, and not all tech is good. That, that, that's fair. Yes. Um, you know, in our current economy, being able to multiply uh, and create on a large scale a product uh, that's reasonably priced for everyone um, is a big driver, unfortunately, in what we do. Uh, would I rather have a small independent kitchen uh, and have 50 of them, one in every state, and deliver to every local municipality the fresh product? Yes. But that's, we know that that's not scalable, and then there's inconsistencies that, between that one product and the next. sounds like the hub delivery kitchens I've been hearing so much about, <laughs> which is actually the restaurant of the future, according to my Apple News feed, yeah. where it's a production kitchen in each city that is delivered by a fleet of drones, and there's no actual restaurant, even though when you go to the delivery app, it looks like it might be a restaurant. I mean, that actually could be the future. That would be great. I mean, if we could reduce our footprint in, in a little bit, uh, reduce our carbon footprint, and, and everyone was to shop local instead of buying products that come from one location. I can fully subscribe. I can fully subscribe to that, 100%. That is a model for. That is part of the delivery model. The production kitchen that's not an actual brick and mortar restaurant. You just shoot out deliveries. And that works, but the problem is, is the input is coming from all over as well. So it's not that that hub kitchen 
is sourcing all of their raw materials from that hub. So while there may be a, a multiple hub kitchens, the raw materials are coming from California, they're coming from Texas, they're coming from Florida. So all of those inputs are all coming from across the globe anyway. So it feels a little disingenuous because it's like, hey, we're selling this local vision, but really the inputs are not necessarily local. Well, there's always but a But I love the model, don't get me wrong. Actually, I think the model of the Hub Kitchen is not based on local and environmental. It's just based on economics and not needing the apparatus of a restaurant to have restaurant-delivered food. Sort of just taking the kitchen and removing everything else, I think, is the idea. Which local would be incidental in the current, in the current and idiom. It, and if we could add some Feel Good Foods products there, that would be amazing. There you go. <laughs> What's your favorite piece of kitchen technology? Is there something that's missing? What's the perfect thing to reheat the spring rolls in and with the pot stickers? Oh, man. Are you going to develop something? Do you have a patent pending? No. Are you working um, with the appliance companies? Unfortunately, I know uh, my limitations from an engineering standpoint, and I think it, starts, uh, it stops there with the electronics. Um, I'm more analog. I'd rather have a zester and a ricer and a chef's knife. Uh, you know, those are my tools of choice, not necessarily uh, a high-tech piece of uh, reheating apparatus. But I, I definitely am loving uh, the air fryer. It's like such an interesting uh, addition to the home kitchen, and we're definitely finding that more and more people are telling us that they have them, which is kind of a surprise. Have you been approached by any of the air fryer companies to do partnerships? I see like a home shopping network holiday pack thing where you get like egg roll, spring rolls for a thousand and the air fryer. Yeah, yeah, we did a collab with uh, an air fryer and, and a lot of that just came from what we were seeing our um, consumers doing and they were sharing it on Instagram. I mean, we, the thing that's kind of cool about our products is that they're really versatile. So when we, you know, we have our intention for how we think it should be, you know, prepared at home and, and served but really like as we said earlier like people do their own thing and like once like they eat them with guacamole yeah or or they'll or they'll flip it they'll take the pot stickers and they'll flip it into like a wonton soup or they'll take the taquitos and they'll bake it and turn it into enchiladas or they'll take the egg rolls and they'll put it in an air fryer and they'll sometimes they'll microwave it i mean they really do whatever they want um, and we obviously have our intention, which is to follow the directions and to just like cook at stovetop or in the oven as like the preferred method. But at the end of the day, we also kind of like that people take liberties because they're feeling free and they're they're making it work with their lifestyle, and that's that's cool. So what's next? What's next coming out of the R and D kitchen? Oh, lots of stuff. You got to turn off our brains sometimes because there's too many ideas floating around the. Uh... Uh, floating around the office. Vanessa definitely has to ground me every once in a while and be like... Does she have the, special requests? Pump, pump the brakes, dude. You've got too, much idea, too many ideas coming out of your head. Any, any special requests, Vanessa? This is your opportunity. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, I've pretty much requested everything already, and now it's just a matter of he kind of keeps like a backlog and he'll be like, remember three years ago? I know you haven't, you still haven't had it. So here's your What's here's on your the list from three years ago? 
You know, there is a really, there's a long list because when <laughs> I went gluten-free, I pretty much gave up everything that I loved. And then slowly, Trig has been rewarding me by introducing it one at a time. He's like, here's a pot sticker. And then a year later, he's like, I know you want an egg roll. And I mean, yeah, I'm sure he's got notes of things he knows I would like. But it's so much bigger than just me at this point. Like, I mean, I think that now it's like people are eating gluten-free for so many different reasons. It's not just about like being celiac. And like we really try and kind of like broaden it to like create foods that is very versatile and that people will enjoy for whatever reason. And the gluten-free part is very important, but Trig is always like working and kind of trying to raise the bar to create things that are not just about being gluten-free, but have other attributes that he thinks are going to be impressive that are important to shoppers today, too. So we're, like, even beyond gluten-free at this point, although the brand will always be gluten-free. It's, like, one of many attributes that Trick is, like, thinking about when he's creating. Uh, ancillary product that might be interesting, which I had seen at... I think it was the World's Fair. Remember maybe two years ago, they tried to revive the World's Fair and they did a World's Fair thing in Brooklyn. It was a lot of tech companies and VR. One of the products there was a little portable gluten-free tester for your food. A little price prohibitive, but it was a person who had celiac disease who would go out to restaurants or buy food and they would say it was gluten-free and then it wasn't. And that was a problem. So it was a little black box, for lack of better words, where you put the food in one side and it did a little test. And then it told you if it was, in fact, gluten-free, which seemed like a great idea. Is that necessary, do you think? Are all gluten-free products created equal? Gluten-free kitchens, that kind of thing? So those tests are, they are definitely being used in restaurants. And I think it's, um, I think it's a little unfair to restaurants. It actually tests up so it's 10 parts per million is the test. And um, I believe that celiacs can tolerate a little bit more um, parts per million of gluten above 10. It was for people, not for restaurants. Like you would carry one in your no, purse. No, 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 right. Yeah. No, so, right. So, what I, so my, my brother owns um, a bunch of gluten-free restaurants and he has customers come in with the test mm. and they order off the gluten-free menu and they test it there. And then if it comes out, hot if it comes out higher than 10 parts per million they send back the food so I'm like very familiar with these tests today because my brother communicates a lot to me about sort of the the challenge with having a contaminated kitchen and if something comes up say at 15 parts per million it doesn't really indicate that in the test Mm -hmm. it's just like a positive or negative so customers are coming in and they're sending back food and it's a little bit of like a mayday situation happening a lot so I, I hear from him the challenges I think it's great that um that that we that we have more tools so that we can be informed and that you know I, I know the struggles of eating and getting sick and trying to trace it back but i also think that there's a lot of ambiguity around like how much or how many parts per million of gluten contamination a celiac or gluten intolerant can can eat to cause a reaction and cross contamination does kind of add up and i think that essentially you are sort of eating out at your own risk a little bit and i I don't know. I think it's a complicated situation, but um, the intention behind the um, the technology, I think, is great and useful, and I think that everybody has a right 
to be informed about when they're eating gluten. So it sounds like the tests need to be a little more precise or a little more range or a little yeah. more degrees of versus a positive negative. I think having an exact number would be really interesting. And I think that the, the average customer doesn't know, like they, you know, they don't realize that there is a range. So, um, and why should they? I mean, that would, I know it because I live in that world. Um, but yeah, I mean, the FDA says 20. I, I personally would probably go a little higher. Um, but, but, but you're I mean, not advocating that people do no, that. No, no, I'm not. We're just I'm advocating not. precision, like precision. actual numbers yes. versus yes or no. Yeah, precision. And right. I think that there needs to be more research as yeah. well done about like how much gluten well, you can really... That, that may really be coming. I had a guest on the show that was talking about technology uh, and people, and he believes that the next generation of technology is wearable tech that tells you what's happening in your body. Like your, your watch or your vest will tell you, you know, how much blood sugar you have, what you need to eat, you're low in potassium, have a banana, and like really hyper-precise analysis of what's happening in your body so that then you can use those metrics to decide how to eat and live, which wow. is just fascinating. He thinks that we have all the technology today in individual pieces and it's a matter of people putting them together into your watch or your vest or a thing that you wear, which is just fascinating. He thinks it's less than 10 years away. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Sounds very futuristic. I'm looking forward to like putting the chip, you know, inside my, uh, inside my wrist or something mm -hmm. that is monitoring everything and just like, let me know like, Hey, yep. it's time to have a banana, buddy. Yep. There or you go. Really Drink some water. Or you're one our... beer low. Yep. Which it would Try, always tell me that. It's really cool for our partnership too. If I can just speak to your technology when you're across the room and you can get inside my mind and know what I need you to do next. <laughs> Sounds like we might have a Valentine's Day episode brewing. <laughs> oh. Couples okay. tech. Couples tech in the food world. Wow. Yeah. Well, we mm -hmm. are just about out of time. I want to take a moment to see if there's anybody in the audience who has a comment or a question or needs another dollar off draft beer, perhaps? No? Spring rolls? Anybody need spring rolls and chips and guacamole? All on the table. Well, I will wrap up by reiterating, this is Trig and Vanessa. They're the co-founders of Feel Good Foods. You can find them on Instagram, at Feel Good Foods. You can find them online, feelgf.com. You will be able to find them in Whole Foods next week, for real. And if you're a Prime member, you'll be getting a discount. So there's no excuse not to give it a try. You will find them at the Winter Fancy Food Show West in San Francisco in January. And... In 2020, breakfast is coming. Breakfast yes. is coming. Breakfast yes. is coming. And we're breakfast sold at Target. And they're sold at Target. Yeah, on sale at Target for all of December. So uh, Holiday shopping. Sounds yeah. like holiday shopping. It does sound like holiday shopping. We're just trying to keep the lights on, so go ahead and go out and buy one or two boxes. for. <laughs> I want to thank Big Alice Bell Room and Industry City for hosting these events. It is so amazing to get to do this with live people. It's a lot of fun. And we have drinks and snacks, which is always great. Uh, Heritage Radio Network, if you don't know us, we've been around for 10 years. You can find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Find us on Instagram at heritage underscore radio and on Facebook, Heritage Radio Network. We have a lot of good stuff coming up at the end of the year and into next year. We have 20,000 hours of talk, food, radio, 
or more on the website. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, all your quality podcasting platforms. But most importantly, if you like me and Tech Bytes, listen to the live show at 6.15 on Tuesdays at Heritage Radio Network or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, subscribe, leave us an amazing review. If you have an idea for a show or you know a startup company or you have some feedback for us, we're very interactive. Get in touch at techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm Jennifer Leutzi. I want to thank you guys for thank coming you. and talking. Thank you so much for having us. And uh, have a good night. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.